0: Okay, let me pray for us real quick, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Um, am I still on? Okay. Father, uh, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for our worship together. Uh, we thank you for your word and all that it teaches us, and uh, for the opportunity we have to um, to talk about it, to think about it, and learn from it together. We ask that you would... Uh, that you would be with us as we discuss your word this morning and that um, you would help us to take what we learn here and what we discuss and apply it in our lives as we go from here. Uh, We pray that the end of all these things would be that we do reflect your image uh, more and more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Okay, so... um, As I said the previous couple weeks, the idea today was to have a little bit more of a discussion or uh, at least for me to be able to answer some of the questions that have been put to me in the previous weeks. And so uh, that's what we'll be uh, doing today and I got a number of questions um, over the past week and I uh, I got six questions Yesterday, I actually got more yesterday evening. But um, I got six questions exactly, and these six questions were weighty enough that um, they're they're enough they're enough for one for one morning. Um, so a couple of these, when when we get to them, are uh, I'll say above my pay grade, but I'll do my best. Um, so um, starting off, uh, one of the questions that has come up in uh, previous weeks, a little bit that's been put to me is, um, how do we, how should we think about the image of God in light of our differences? Uh, we are, after all, not all the same, but we are all made in the image of God. So how do we, uh, how, how should we think about the image of God in light of the fact that we are not all the same, um, and yet are all made in the image of God? Um, hopefully that makes sense. And I'm uh, happy to have some input from the audience, thoughts for, uh, as far as what you all uh, think about this question yourselves. But uh, as, we, as we think about it, I think one interesting thing to do is to take note of uh, some of the language used in Genesis 126 and 27. And um, in particular, in particular, Genesis 126. Uh, interestingly says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and, and so on and so forth, everything else. Um, so there's a plural there, them. Uh, in, and uh, then when we get to Genesis 127, even more interesting, uh, so God created humankind in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now, so that's talking about specifically the difference between male and female, but one interesting thing about that is that that alone tells us that whatever it means to bear God's image and likeness cannot be monolithic. Um, Said differently, another way to say that is bearing the image of God obviously does not mean that we all look the same. Um, because the image of God starts off with male and female, one very obvious difference. Um, So it strikes me that we can actually take that same truth that from the very beginning, uh, whatever it means to bear the image of God, it does not mean that we all look the same. We can take that and apply that in a number of ways, not just to gender, as it's applied here, um, but you could apply this equally, I think, to issues like race, ethnicity, um, culture, um, we can apply this to our vocations, and doubtless there are other things that we can apply this to as well, um, and those are just a few obvious things that come to mind, um, but I'm, I'm happy to hear any other thoughts from the audience, too, um, how, how this might, uh, um, how, the, how the image of God might be reflected in our differences. Yes, Linda. Right. Uh, so, great point. Um, so, Linda, for those that didn't hear, just said um, that, uh, you know, God is spirit. And so, in one sense, we, we can't look like him. And um, now we talked in the first week a little bit about the fact that in the whole history of what people have thought about the image of God, there have been some people who um, thought that it actually meant that we somehow resemble him physically. But most people have not really thought that, and it seems that the emphasis in Scripture is more on us resembling God in terms of character, um, morality, um, uh, rationality, things of that sort. And so Linda's point, which I think is a good one, is that um, we we reflect God in terms of our um, our moral character, our our spiritual character. Our rationality. Uh, these are things that, that, you know, apply across the board. You can, it's possible to reflect God uh, no matter what voc- vocation you have, no matter uh, what, um, what gender you are, what race, ethnicity, anything else. Um, there's, uh, we can reflect God equally in terms of moral character, rationality, and those sorts of things. Um, other thoughts? Yes, Chris. So, uh, I believe that Genesis says, let us think that powerful, is mm-hmm. not just mind. So, even in the context, of God is different. I thought the sentiment was right. different as well. Right. Yeah, uh, great point. So, uh, Chris, for those that didn't hear, was just saying uh, that, you know, we also, in addition to the fact that God creates, you know, them, um, there's a plural there in Genesis one twenty six. In addition to that, uh, he also says, let us make man in our image. So there's also a uh, reflection there of... The plurality that God, plurality of persons that God has within Himself—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—and uh, we talked about that a little bit in previous weeks. How it does seem, actually, in Genesis, that part of what's going on here is that God's own inner relationality. Um, God is unique among um, all beings, and that He has relationality within Himself, um, uh, but. Uh, God's own inner relationality seems to be imprinted upon us. That's part of what it means to be made in His image, is that that relationality gets imprinted on us. And so Chris's point was that just as in uh, the um, New Testament, the language of the body, we see that, um, that it is together as a community that we, uh, that we reflect Christ um, most fully Together, we are the body of Christ, and uh, we complement each other in all sorts of various ways within the body. Uh, So, too, perhaps um, we can say here, we we can see a little bit of a a precursor to that thought, at least, um, that, uh, that we we reflect the image of God, um, not just as individuals, but as a community. Um, our differences are actually essential to that. We reflect God in different ways, um, though equally so. And, um, and so the image of God perhaps actually shines through even more clearly um, in a community of human beings than in individuals. Um, and um, uh, that, I have to caveat that in one way, of course, we're talking about ideally what should have been the case if there had not been a fall. Um, And uh, and so the fall, as we saw last week, um, significantly twists all of that. um, Yes, Anna. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, great point. So uh, Anna was just saying uh, that you know, in leading a Bible study, she has asked students, um, "Do you um, do you think that um, and th- that we tend to see men made in the?" Uh, image of God more than women. Um, so actually, I think it would be interesting to just do a show of hands. Um, as In terms of the rhetoric that you all have heard used, um, how many of you would say that um, the rhetoric that you have heard over the years uh, seems to um, speak of men in the image of God more so than women, or at least give that impression? Um, how many would say something like that? Not, not here, not, not in Stone Hill, just in general, broadly. Okay, so I'm seeing a, a number of hands, and that's not surprising. Um, and uh, I, I think it's, it's certainly a question that comes up. I remember when I was taking exegesis of Genesis in seminary, this was a question that came up, and. Um, whatever we want to say of later tradition which is going to go in all sorts of different directions i think that we can see here very clearly in genesis 127 that male and female are equally made in the image of god and that, that is really important uh, to parse out um one of the things of course that we run into in genesis 126 and 27 is a translation issue um a lot of translations, including the ESV, will say, you know, uh, let us make man in our image in Genesis one twenty-six, followed by uh, so God created man in his image uh, in Genesis one twenty-seven, And I touched on this briefly in one of our previous weeks, but it is important to say that what's going on there is that you, you have a Hebrew word um, capable of a few different meanings and could mean... Um, a man as in a person, um, not necessarily a male, just a person um, it could also the same word could mean um, man as in uh, humankind, so talking about more or less the species as a whole, not even an individual um, and uh, what it actually does not really refer to is um a a male um and, uh, you know, so this has to do with more archaic forms of, well, I shouldn't really say archaic necessarily, but, um, but it was common in, uh, more common in um, previous generations of, um, to, to speak of, uh, to use man as sort of a generic um, for a human being. Um, when we read the word man in Genesis one twenty six and one twenty seven Uh, We really have to see it in that generic sense, and um, uh, the Hebrew word does not refer to a male. It refers to either a person or to, you could say, the species as a whole, humankind. Um, And uh, some translations will now translate it that way. If you look at translation traditions in other languages, um, I haven't looked at them all, but I occasionally will read the Bible in German just to practice my German or, or French or something like that, and uh, they're using words that are more analogous to humankind than, um, than a, a man, as in a male. Um, so that's important to get clear here. Now, in Genesis 127, then, when we see, so God created man in his image, we really need to read that as God created humankind in his image. Um, then in the second line of that, in the image of God, he created him. The pronoun there, him, is really referring back to humankind. So again, it does not necess- necessarily specify um, male anything. And then the final line there actually makes all of that very clear because it says male and female, he created them. Um, in terms of Hebrew um, uh, Hebrew literary style. This is what we would call parallelism. Um, and that line, male and female, he created them, is actually supposed to be a thought synonymous with, in the image of God, he created him, um, meaning humankind. So, so it's actually extremely clear, I mean, and more clear if you're reading it in Hebrew, but it's, um, but it's very clear in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that male and female are equally created in the image of God. Um, but I'm not sure that that comes through, whether because of translation issues or various other traditions and, and, and certain aspects of our history. Um, I'm not sure that that comes through in many discussions of the image of God. So it does need to be said clearly. And, uh, and as Anna said, you could apply that same thought in other directions to race, ethnicity, culture, um, a lot of other things. And... Um, and so uh, theologians have, of course, um, uh, discussed some of those issues at length, um, but, that, but for now, um, since I don't have time to go full into all of that, um, uh, it, it, I think it at least needs to be said that there is, there is a clear answer to the question in Genesis one twenty seven. The image of God refers equally to male and female. So... Um, uh, okay, um, do we want to discuss this one further, or should we go on to question number two? Um, all right, I'm, I'm seeing two, um, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and move on. Um, second question that I received was, um, how does the truth that we are made in the image of God play into pro-life debates? And so uh, to start for one thing, it certainly has played into pro-life debates. It's one of the um, biblical doctrines that is discussed um, in connection with um, pro-life arguments um, frequently, and, but let's just think through scripturally for a minute how the truth that we are made in the image of God might affect our thinking about pro-life debates. Uh, to begin with, one thing that we saw in previous weeks was that the truth that we are made in God's image raises the bar for the sanctity of life to the highest degree possible. Um, and I didn't put it up on the screen, but Genesis 9-6, a verse that we've talked about in past weeks, um, makes clear that uh, from God's perspective, to kill a human being is to assault God's own image. Um, and so it's, uh, it's an incredibly serious thing in Scripture. And, um, and so, it, so one thing that we see, if, if people are indeed made in God's image, every single human being that we, that we encounter um, is, is a reflection of God's image. Um, this has to raise, as I said, this has to raise our thinking about the sanctity of human life to the highest possible degree. Um, I think this is, I didn't say this in previous weeks, but I think there is an analogy here to Jesus' statement in Matthew twenty-five, forty: Whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. This is how God seems to see it in Genesis 9, 6. Whatever you've done to a human being, you have indirectly done to him because you did it to his image. Um, and so, uh, so there's a very high bar set for the sanctity of life there. Uh, what we also have to say, to be totally fair, is that the image of God by itself, the, the doctrine of the Imago Dei by itself, may not get us to exactly um, where we want to be. And it may not, you know, in, in the pro life debates, in that it does not tell us, um, it doesn't necessarily say anything about when life begins. Um, and so Imago Dei by itself um, may not, you know, settle the argument um, for you. Genesis 1:26 and 27 probably aren't going to settle the argument for us. For that, though, uh, we only need to turn to a couple other scriptures, um, scriptures like Psalm 139:13 through 16. And um, I've only put one of those verses up on the screen, but um, but psalm 139 16 is probably the most um uh, most relevant of all of of that passage Uh, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them Um, we could also talk about uh, jeremiah 1 5 that's another verse that commonly comes up in um, pro-life conversations uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. So Genesis one twenty-six and 27 may not tell us exactly when we were created, uh, when, when the image of God becomes a reality or something. doesn't really say anything about when human life begins vis-a-vis the womb. We're, after all, not talking about the womb in Genesis one twenty-six and 27. Um, but there are other verses in Scripture that certainly make that clear enough. And when you combine the witness of those verses with the witness of Genesis 126 and 27, then I think that it is um, a fair uh, biblical statement to say that um, that we are made in the image of God um, before birth. Um, and uh, you would have to say from things like Psalm 139 and and Jeremiah 1:5 uh, that life begins at least at conception um, and uh, that the image of God be- begins at least at conception. And so, the, um, and so uh, that's, I don't know if others have anything to add to that, but that's, what I would, that's how I would sum it up, that the, um, the, the truth that human beings are made in the image of God, what it does is it raises our thinking about the sanctity of life. Uh, when you put that in conjunction with some other scriptures um, and that suggest that uh, there's, there's a strong suggestion, I think, in the overall canon of scripture that the image of God is something that comes into existence before birth. Um, any other thoughts or comments? Yes. Thank you um, so I to summarize a little bit as best I can, um, there are a couple of things that you said that I think are extremely important are um, number one that um, uh, the the blood of Christ is there for all and um, and there is forgiveness for all and um, you know and one thing that we have to be very careful with. Uh, While well, we want to affirm um, the value of all life, um, including unborn life, um, I think we have to be very careful not to um, not not to so denigrate and shame and those who have had abortions, and as as to uh, inadvertently communicate to them that there's no place for them in the church, and that most certainly there is, and there is forgiveness. Um, for that as well as everything else. And, um, you know, at the same time, um, yes, the reason, part of the reason why, um, part of the the picture that we get of the sanctity of life in Scripture is that God indeed has a purpose for every single human being created in His image, um, uh, which is uh, ultimately to the praise of His glory, and and in killing and taking um this one human life you may actually be wiping out a generation um, that, i mean generations upon generations that could have given praise to god's glory and um and you know but but again uh, taking it back to the image of god specifically um what the image, what the what the truth that we are made in God's image itself does is raise our thinking about the sanctity of life, and that has to be the sanctity of all life—unborn, um, born uh, mothers as well as um, unborn children—and um, and it can't end either at um, what we. At protecting unborn life. Um, It would make no sense to uh, protect life until it's born um, and then stop uh, nourishing it and protecting it once it's born. Uh, If we really believe in sanctity of life, it has to be sanctity of all life. Um, um, Okay, for the sake of time, let me move on to number three. Um, And this is kind of a three-part question, but Uh, They all go together. Um, How does an understanding of the image of God help us also understand the nature of sin? Is sin merely a corruption of what is good or is it an absolute entity of its own? How does the answer to this question help us in the fight to lay hold of God's grace? Uh, So how does an understanding of the image of God help us understand the nature of sin? Uh, What is the nature of sin? Is it uh, simply corruption of good or is it an entity of its own? And then, however we answer that question, how does that help us to fight, to lay hold of God's grace against sin? So, let me throw out a a few ideas. There are a lot of different ways that sin has been defined throughout the centuries, Um, but two of the most prominent, two of the most important, really, are uh, the idea of sin as the corruption or the privation of what is good. This comes into Christian theology through Augustine and has been one of the um, most influential concepts of what evil is or what sin is, for that matter, um, throughout history. And if we look at what we saw in, uh, in last week, in particular, when we looked at the fall, we saw that one thing that the fall does in terms of the image of God is that it corrupts every aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. We saw that Genesis 1 and 2 seem to highlight three particular aspects of what it means to be made in the image of god one is our um our relationality and and especially our kinship to god himself Um, another is how we represent god as his uh, royal representatives kingship stewardship ideas like that another um uh, the the final, then, and how we how we represent God Himself um, uh, within the temple of creation, and uh, we saw how the fall corrupted all three of those things, aspects of what it means to be made in the image of God, severely. And so, in that sense, um, Genesis three probably actually gives pretty good warrant to Augustine's kind of thinking about sin—sin uh, sin as the as primarily the corruption of what is good. Um, from this perspective, um, evil has no actual substance of its own. Um, evil evil has no positive value. Um, all it is actually is a degradation or privation of the good that God created. Um, and, uh, and, and in one sense, that makes a lot of sense of what we read in Genesis 3, um, what we see in terms of the image of God, how the image of God is corrupted, and, uh, there, and there is a, uh, a degradation. Um, uh, the, the effect of sin is fundamentally one of degradation um, in Genesis 3. On the other hand, um, it's interesting that uh, one of the other ways, uh, metaphorical ways, that Scripture can speak about sin is as an external force or power. Now this comes through especially in Paul's writings, um, and Romans 5 through 8 would be a great example. Um, you could read all four of those chapters in succession, and, and uh, if you… If think about it and read those chapters, and you'll you'll see pretty clearly that Paul is speaking of sin as a kind of external force or power, one that enslaves us to it. Now, interestingly, Augustine had this language too. Um, Augustine spoke of the image of God as as having been enslaved by sin um, at one point. And so... Uh, There there are sort of two different images here of of sin in relation to the image of God. One is that sin is um, primarily at least whether we say sin is the corruption of good, uh, it is at least it leads leads to it results in the corruption of the image of God. Um, At the same time, we can talk about sin as a power that enslaves the image of God. and sometimes these views are opposed to each other, but I don't think that they necessarily have to be opposing views. Um, we can think, one, another metaphor that is sometimes used for sin, uh, later than Paul or Augustine, but I think does justice to both, is um, we, we can think of sin as a sort of uh, power or a sickness that corrupts the good in us like a cancer or a virus. Um, cancer corrupts good cells in a body and, and, and grows insidiously. As it does so, it corrupts those cells into something that is, that is useless. Um, it negates the positive value that they once had, and as it grows, um, uh, it does so in, in, in an absolutely devastating way. Um, Viruses work similarly they spread and they don't corrupt good cells necessarily, but they but a virus spreads within a person and uh, wreaks havoc the more that it spreads or if you think of a computer virus for that matter same thing Um, and uh, so so that's a that's an image then that might do some justice to both Um, a, a force working within you that is and that is resulting in the corruption of the good that God created, Um, and um, so how would these, there are, by the way, other um, ways of defining sin and thinking about sin, but these are are at least um, two prominent, and I think, biblical ways. Um, So how does this help us to fight sin, then? Well, it strikes me that, uh, for one thing, If sin is the privation of what is good, if sin is primarily corruption of what is good, uh, then one way that we can fight it is actually by clinging to the good that God created in the first place, clinging to what is truly excellent. So Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Setting your mind on the things that are truly excellent and beautiful, the things that God has created, um, uh, that good that God originally ordained in creation is one way actually to fight back against the sort of corruption that um, that corruption of good that we see in sin. Um, When I when I think about this concept, I I always remember um, uh, a section from uh, the Screw Tape letters by C.S. Lewis, where uh, toward the end, as as um, Screw Tape is, um, and as as they are failing um, these two demons to uh, corrupt the human being that they're working on, their patient as they call him, um, they at one point. Um, you know, the the more senior of the two demons is talking to the junior and saying, you know, what happened? Um, How did you fail here? And uh, and the answer that he receives back is he read a good book. Um, He read a good book, and that made him hard to get to. Um, And uh, I can attest to that in my own life, that when uh, when I am reflecting on the beauty of God's creation, I am less tempted by sin. Um, when I am reading um, a good book uh, that causes me to, again, to dwell on, uh, to, to somehow dwell on the glory of, of God or His creation, um, it makes me less susceptible to sin. Um, good music um, can actually have that effect. Um, If you were here last night for the double piano concert, um, things of this sort dwelling on what is truly excellent can actually be a way of fighting back against sin. Um, And uh, I've experienced in my own life that it really does make me less susceptible susceptible to the temptation of sin. Um, At the same time, if we take the other uh, concept that we're working with here, uh, sin as an external power. If sin is a power that enslaves us, then it stands to reason that we can only be freed from it by a greater power, namely the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Um, so think about a verse like Romans 5.17. This reflects that truth, I think. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace through the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There, the language there of, of reigning, um, the The former reign of, of death through sin, uh, the reign um, uh, of life through Jesus Christ uh, is very clear there and um, and so so if you put those two thoughts together, then well, for one thing, without Christ, we have no hope. Um, we need the power of Christ to free us from the power the enslavement of sin, but through christ we do have the ability, again, to cling to what is good and holy. And as we do so, we may see some of the image of God restored in us. Um, So those are a few thoughts about how um, the image of God helps us think about sin. Yes. Uh, Yes, so there is certainly an aspect of pride, I think, in the original sin that happens in the fall, and it stands to reason that if, you know, humility is its opposite, um, humility is also one way that um, we can lay hold of God's grace, fight against sin, Um, and um, yeah, so thank you for that. That's a good thought. Anything else before yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and that gets into a slightly different issue: the reasons for sin, um, what what motivates us to sin, and certainly uh, the temptation temptation from Satan is one aspect of that. There are also other verses, such as um, in in the book of James. Um, the exact verse references escaping me at the moment, but in the book of James, we also see that. Um, James ascribes temptation to sin to our own, our own um, lusts, um our own sinful desire, uh, which is a part of us ever since the fall, this innate lure to sin. And so I think there's a little bit of a both end there that um, I think the, the picture that I get from a lot of scripture, including James, is that um, Sometimes we don't really need any help from the devil. Um, uh, we would do it by ourselves. Um, on the other hand, he is seemingly very happy to help um, and, um, and to push us along in that direction. Um, and uh, so, so there's the idea of resisting the devil in Scripture, um, and then there's also the more difficult issue, in some ways, of how we resist our own inherently sinful impulses, um, which um, we, we can't really do either of those things, resist the devil or resist our own sinful impulses apart from Christ. Um, but, uh, yeah, so let me go ahead and—I have one minute left— um, and this is right where I get to the questions that are, I would say, above my pay grade. Um, and so I've written down some notes here, but um, I can't possibly, there's, there's, I'm not even going to try with one minute left um, to get into this. Um, so I only got through half the questions. I should have known it was ambitious to get through, to try to think I could get through all six. Um, but I hope this was helpful. I do have my notes here, and I'm Uh, perfectly happy to interact further about any of these things Um, if you read something in the notes that you have questions about, feel free to email me and um, maybe I can uh, I might even think about coming back to some of these things next week Um, so anyway, uh, thank you all, I hope this was helpful and I'm sorry that we didn't get through all of the questions Um, and so I'll be back here next week